0: Maybe it's your mother or sister, perhaps a friend or a co worker, or maybe it's someone you don't know personally. Maybe it's the cousin of a friend. Maybe it's you. Whatever the case may be, I bet you're aware of someone who's been diagnosed with breast cancer. I'm George Borarchy, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. My guest this morning was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 35 then again in her late 40s. Ruth Peltison lives right here in New York City, and Ruth has a new book called I Am Not My Breast Cancer, published by William Morrow. Ruth, welcome to Cityscape.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Your book is a collection of responses from women with breast cancer from an online forum, a forum that you co-founded called First Person Plural. How did it all begin?
1: It started because I was recovering from my surgeries, and I started thinking, you know, this is very hard for me. And if it's hard for me with such a wonderful support group and great doctors in New York, it's got to be harder for someone else. It's got to be harder for a woman who maybe has to get up in the morning and get her children dressed and off to school. It's got to be hard for a woman who doesn't have good doctors or lives far away from her doctors. So I thought, well, I've been an editor for many, many years. It's time to give back, and why don't I do the book, for me, the book I could never find for myself. And that's what I resolved to do. Then one night, a friend came over who's the husband of a childhood friend of mine. His name is Mark Weiss. And he has a company called WebLab that produces online forums. So Mark and I partnered to do this two-part project, the forum and then subsequently the book.
0: Creating a place where women can turn to find out what other women have gone through.
1: Yes, it was deliberately a sort of members-only club. You couldn't be a sibling of someone with breast cancer. You couldn't be a spouse. You had to be that woman going through breast cancer.
0: Now, you say that woman, but we know that men also get breast cancer.
1: We do. It's a very small percentage, and I just decided to level the playing field and, I mean, I know I'm a woman. I know how women feel about certain issues. And I just thought, I'm going to keep it simple.
0: You right in the book that breast cancer is one of the most democratic diseases. What do you mean by that?
1: It really is not about your education. It is not about your race. It is not about your income. If you're nice, if you're not nice, really in almost how old you are. We've seen it in, as, in women as young as 25. We've seen it happen to women in their 70s. So I sort of felt that after a point, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen to you. And that, in a sense, made it so democratic. Again, to use that metaphor, it levels the playing field.
0: So the women in your book come from all walks of life.
1: Oh, my gosh. It's amazing. We have, in our book, there are women who are stay-at-home moms. There are women who work in factories. There are CEOs, nurses, teachers. It's extraordinary. The retired uh, women, they live in Montana. They live in West Virginia. They live in New York City. They live in Boston. They live in San Antonio, Texas.
0: What is the stat these days? One in eight women will get breast cancer? Yes. You said, though, in the book that if you had to take the hit of all of your girlfriends, you were glad to do it.
1: Absolutely. I was 35. I had a relatively safe sort of breast cancer. And I thought, okay, if this is, if I'm that one in eight, one in nine who gets it, and I had at that time, let's say nine or 10 close girlfriends, I thought, this isn't so bad. You know, I can deal with this. This, this isn't too bad. And if it means everyone else sort of sails through in my group, I like that.
0: How vividly do you remember the day you were told you had breast cancer?
1: Um, it's unforgettable. It's, it's that simple. I, I think no woman ever forgets the day she's told she has you know, a breast cancer. I was um, going back to my surgeons. I'd had a biopsy. And I actually <laughs> was humming uh, the Streisand song, Happy Days Are Here Again. And I was shown into the doctor's office. I hadn't even closed the door. And he looked up from his desk. And he said, I'm so surprised you have a malignancy. And I thought, my legs are going to buckle. You know, I'm not even going to be able to sit down, much less close the door. Mm. So it was a complete change.
0: A lot of the women in your book write about the day they were first told. And some women didn't like the way they were told. There was one woman who was told over the phone she was at work, and she just couldn't believe her doctor told her that way.
1: At work, let's face it, there's always a little bit of, you know, it's showtime, you're on. One woman talked about how she was in her car on her cell phone when her doctor called her, and she said, I could have had an accident right then. I mean, she said, I think that the medical profession needs to make sure that they're aware that when they tell a woman this, it is the most life-changing news she's going to get.
0: A doctor can learn a lot by reading this book.
1: A doctor can learn a lot by reading this book, and I I want to speak to that point for a moment because I asked my surgeon, Peter Pressman, to write the foreword to my book. And after the news that day when the doctor said to me, I can't believe you have a malignancy, I changed doctors. I went to Peter Pressman, and I've been with Peter ever since because he is so kind, he is so considerate, he is so um, compassionate, and... Smart. And I felt that my book would perhaps complement books like Peter Pressman's and Susan Loves, that it would serve as the sort of emotional partner to their book. And I am someone who loves all her doctors and um and I have a huge regard for all doctors in this field, particularly because it's so emotionally draining. I felt, and Peter agreed with me after reading the the book, the manuscript, that This book does have a lot to offer doctors. I also hope that people in the health insurance field will read it and realize that all of us are real.
0: I personally learned a lot from your book. I learned how to better approach people with any kind of disease, how to ask them questions.
1: You know, it's interesting. A lot of people have said to me since reading my book that they found in the end, that it was kind of a template for talking to anyone with serious disease. Because, I mean, my mother said to me, you know, if I had your book when you were 35, I would have known how to talk to you. I would have known what to say. I've talked to professional women who've said to me, now I know how to address the woman at my office. I know how to talk to her. I know what tone of voice I have. Because if there's one thing a woman With breast cancer can't bear is when someone says to them, but how are you really? And they look at you with that sort of, like they're expecting you to fall over any second. So I think that whether one has a breast cancer, or if it's a man with a lung disease, we learn a lot about relationships from this book. And relationships come down to relating to other people.
0: You mentioned that women often get that question, how are you really doing? Something else that's also interesting is that after a woman goes through treatment and has beat breast cancer, people just assume that they're fine. It's gone. Forget about it.
1: It's like saying to a woman who's had a baby, well, you've had your baby, you're no more a mother. Or if your child dies, you're no more a mother. I mean, these things are with us. Any woman who's been treated for breast cancer will tell you, Every morning when she looks in the mirror, when she gets out of that shower, she knows she's someone who's had breast cancer. She doesn't feel defined by it, but it's there. So when someone thinks, well, your hair's grown back, you're exercising again, you're going out, and it's great. And you do feel great that you've returned to your life. But you've returned to your life changed, and your life has changed because of it.
0: There's a whole section in your book in which women talk about what they see when they look in the mirror, and the responses are really quite varied.
1: That question is something I thought of because it is inescapable. (laughs) seeing myself in the mirror every morning when I come out of the shower. There's too many mirrors in my bathroom. And we partnered with 10 breast cancer organizations when creating the questions for the online forum. And this is one that I put forward. And our partner said, it's a very important question. And we found that when we asked the women that, nearly 90% of them responded. It turned out to be one of the most moving passages in the book, And, in fact, the responses vary according to how far out a woman is from the time she's been diagnosed. If she's six months out, what she sees is very different than if she's six years out. And it's not just physical, but it's emotional. It's psychological. So that, what you see when you look in the mirror, became, in a way, a self-portrait of a woman with breast cancer.
0: Can you read some of those responses for us?
1: One of my favorite comments is a woman who writes, When I look in the mirror, I see every other woman who has gone through this. Another one of my favorite comments is a woman who writes, The heck with the mirror! I I actually understood what she means. I'm just going to read a few more in rapid order. I love to place my hand over my heart where my breast has been removed and feel my heart beating. When I look in the mirror, I see a future. Love what you got because you can live without a breast. You cannot say the same for the human heart. I don't know who I see. It doesn't look like me, and it doesn't feel like me. It's like a stranger looking back at me, and I am not at all sure that I want to know her. At 65, I tend to be one of the invisible ones out there in the world, unless I smile. Everyone reacts beautifully to smiles. Sometimes I look in the mirror and ask, Who is this person? Is this really me? I then look closer at my face and into my eyes and remember, Yes, this is me. I am still the same person. I just look a little different than I used to.
0: We should say that the women in the book are identified by their screen names, their online screen names.
1: Yes, they have names such as Soccer Mom, Mountain Mama, Pink Lady, Passion Flower, Autumn. Named after someone's dog.
0: I would imagine that gave these women the anonymity that they needed to really express their feelings without fear of any type of repercussion.
1: It was fantastic, the The screen names, what I think of um, in non-computer lingo as pen names. There was a significant part of our project where women talked about love and sexual intimacy, And they got to really (laughs) discussing what was going on in the bedroom at night, and some of it very sad, some of it moving, some of it actually very funny. But at one point, a woman writes in, I am so glad this is anonymous, and I bet my husband is too. Do all women lose their sex drive when they go through treatments for breast cancer? Categorically, no. But it changes. For one thing, some of your libido is a function of age anyway. Some of your uh, libido is tempered by the type of cocktail of chemo drugs that you might be given. It can be tempered by the post-chemo drugs you're given, such as tamoxifen or uh, aromacin, both drugs, which I took. It also is a question of how high was your libido to begin with? How old are you? What sort of relationship are you in? How do you feel about yourself?
0: What kinds of challenges did women face when it came to being intimate with their partners?
1: Oh, God. It's very tough. Some women talked about being in a very good marriage and yet being unable to remove their, their shirt or a camisole. And they said, you know, this is what we do now. We cuddle. We spoon. We just hold hands. Another woman says, my husband loves to trace the place where my scar was. He says, it's the most beautiful part of me. It's almost hard for me still to talk about how moving these passages are, and I felt that when I was assembling the material for the book, I wanted to represent women who were in good marriages, challenging marriages, women who were widowed or divorced or single, uh, women who were gay, women who were very young and felt absolutely robbed without having their breasts. Someone who talked about how she was married only two years when she had a mastectomy. This is very tough stuff. And the biggest drama takes place in the bedroom as as the women say, you know, your breasts really become the, this is a mixed metaphor, but really become the elephant in the room when it comes to being sexually intimate.
0: Did any of these women lose their partners because they lost their breasts?
1: Yes, there are women who found that Men sort of abandon them. But then, you know, I have to say there were plenty of women who talk about they were dating and a woman decides to tell her boyfriend, look, I'm going to be, you know, having a mastectomy and I'm going to be bald and everything else. And he looks at her and says, I want to be with you. And then she writes, and that was 10 years ago. We're married and have children.
0: Mm. There was one woman who wrote about her husband's response when she removed her bandages. And I was really floored by that response. Bride of Frankenstein, he said.
1: Yeah, he, uh, he was a terrible person, which leads me to a kind of larger theme, which is that both for me and the women, we start to sort the people in our lives, those who are toxic and those who are tonic. Or to use my favorite metaphor, you know, is the glass half full or is it half empty? A lot of the women talk about going through this experience of breast cancer and saying, that's when they sort out relationships what are the good ones? What's not working? What doesn't make them feel good? What makes them feel better about themselves? Whether that's a love relationship, whether that's the workplace, whether that's friends in their lives.
0: I guess that being said, women really have to question themselves about who should I tell that I have breast cancer and how should I tell them?
1: Sharing the news of a diagnosis is really the first step once you've been told. And who you tell... And how you express the news almost becomes a blueprint for how you proceed through the disease. I, for one, being in New York, uh, and my family lives in the Midwest, called my best friend, and we met at my office. And next thing I remember, we're sitting in a restaurant, and I'm crying. And we're saying, we're going to solve this, you know. The next thing I remember is calling my parents and that's awful because, you know, a woman in her mid-30s should not have to call her parents and tell, her, tell them that. So I think that how you share the news, to whom you express it, is vital. I mean, thank goodness we now have email because some women, where it used to be, you'd have sort of a telephone chain. Now we have the email chain. So one woman will maybe tell someone and ask that person to please let... 10 other people know. So it becomes a kind of email tree, as it were.
0: Can you read some of the responses that you received when it comes to that issue of disclosure?
1: One woman says about being upbeat when sharing the news, whenever people ask me if I will be okay, I tell them no, but I'm going to be better. Another woman says, not sharing the illness with those close to you doesn't allow them to deal with it and get the pleasure of helping you. I found that one of the most instructive comments because people want to help.
0: On the flip side of that, though, there are people who don't know how to handle the situation, including mothers of women who developed breast cancer who pretty much turned their back on their daughters.
1: Yes, there's one woman who says, in effect, she says, get over it, and she says, quote, it's just a blip on the radar screen.
0: You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Bodarki. My guest this morning is Ruth Peltison. She is a breast cancer survivor and the author of I Am Not My Breast Cancer, which is out now from William Morrow. Now, I refer to you as a breast cancer survivor, and we hear that word thrown about, the word survivor, quite a bit when women beat breast cancer. But not all women like the word survivor.
1: And I'm one of them. I don't even think of myself as someone with breast cancer. So, I mean, if I survive something, that's fine. But I survived the flu. I've had my cartilage replaced i've had any number of other little you know things along the way so i never feel I, I survived my grandparents deaths you know so i just feel that it's a long way to say it but i'm a woman who has had breast cancer i mean as one woman in the book says well if we're survivors what does that make the women who died failures
0: did you ever feel like a victim
1: never 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 One of my brothers called me and he said, you know, Ruth, do you feel like you want to say, why me? And I said, no, I want to look around and say, who, me? They've got the wrong girl. I just thought it just didn't make sense.
0: Did any of the women in the book feel otherwise?
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, there are some women who had very tough childhoods, maybe abuse, sexual abuse. And then as an adult to have this disease just... Oh, my gosh, the ripple effect was psychologically very, very tough for them.
0: How varied are the emotions when you first learn of your diagnosis?
1: Oh, how many keys are there in a piano? I mean, (laughs) you know, you feel everything. You feel confused. You feel angry. You feel scared. You sort of get upbeat, like, okay, I think I can do it. You know, what's that kid's thing? I think I can. I think I can. Despair. If you're me, you're someone who just arms herself with research and figures that research will make me feel better. And in fact, it did, which is why I say information is power.
0: Share with me some of the responses that women put out there when they first learned that they had breast cancer.
1: One woman talks about control and she says, perhaps the most difficult thing for me in my journey was letting go of something over which I have no control. I was making myself crazy by second-guessing myself on everything and worrying that my decisions were the wrong ones. And then she answers herself and says, But once you've made your decision, you have to put your faith in your doctors and let go and give it to God. Speaking of which, a lot of the women talk about faith and religion and spirituality, which is another component of sort of responding to breast cancer.
0: Most of the women in your book never questioned the existence of God, which kind of surprised me. I thought that some women would do that.
1: Well, there are atheists in the book. I try to represent women across the spectrum, regardless if it was my own personal view. I mean, there are women who talk about seeing angels in their hospital room, uh, women who talk about being on prayer lists. One woman says, you know, I'm on a lot of prayer lists. I'm on Catholic prayerless, Jewish prayerless, Buddhist prayerless, Mormons, she said, Muslim, she said, I figure what can it hurt? The more the better. I found that even the most angry woman, and this would be again, you have to understand a snapshot at that moment in that person's life, but I found that all these women find a way to make lemonade out of lemons. They are naturally buoyant. I can't believe it. These are women who absolutely, you know, they see three hairs growing back and they go, hooray! They are spirited.
0: There's a lot of talk about hair loss in your book. We know that people do lose their hair when they go through treatments for cancer. And it's funny because some women didn't care that the hair on their head fell off, but they freaked out when (laughs) they lost hair on other parts of their body, especially their pubic hair.
1: Right. We talk about it being the South Pole. It's quite surprising, I can say, I can tell you. It's, uh, you feel like you're 10 years old again, and which is kind of weird when you're 45. <laughs> so it, it sort of uh, takes your breath away. But the whole hair loss thing is huge. But again, I mentioned about women being positive. A woman writes, being bald has helped people come up to me and talk. And I love that. Another woman says, you know, my husband's bald, and now that I'm bald and we walk down the street, we just look like a pair of salt and pepper shakers together. <laughs> <laughs> she said some people point at us and say, they must be artists.
0: Some women were pretty proactive. They shaved their head long before. As soon as they got that diagnosis, they took it all off.
1: Yeah, they. The one woman writes about how she has a friend come over and shave her head in the backyard. And they're sitting in the backyard. And she didn't really think much about it, and the neighborhood boy walks by and starts to look because he thinks it's kind of odd seeing a woman getting her head shaved. And then another kid walks by, and then a neighbor walking their dog stops. And she said, after a while, there are like 10 people in my backyard watching my head get shaved. And she said, you know what? It was fantastic.
0: And some women who opted for wigs initially decided to lose the wigs eventually.
1: Yeah, they just said the heck with it and threw them away. I am not one of those girls. I kept my wig on till, oh my gosh, till I thought I was going to have heat stroke. I was so hot in the summer from it.
0: Was it a self-image thing?
1: I think it was. I think I've always had such a nice full head of hair. I don't know. I felt more comfortable because I simply didn't want to draw attention to myself. I didn't want others around me to feel uncomfortable. So I thought the more I looked like me, the more people would just treat me as they always had. I just didn't want any special treatment.
0: Besides hair loss, what other side effects did women talk about?
1: Of course, if they've gone through chemotherapy or radiation treatment, they talk about fatigue and nausea. I mean, the physical side effects are huge, but the emotional side effects are bigger. I mean, let's really put this in perspective. What about women who have children? Uh, A woman who has children... It is so much harder for her than hair loss or even being intimate with her husband because, I mean, as one woman said, you know, I worry about my daughter. My husband can hardly tie, you know, a ribbon for her ponytail. What's he going to do if I'm not here and she gets her period?
0: Fear for their children on so many different levels. Number one, they won't be there perhaps to take care of them. Number two, their daughters may get breast cancer, just really so much concern for the kids
1: the worry that you have somehow in effect infected your daughter with the disease is absolutely mind numbing it's sort of a, a sort of sophie's choice what do you do at that point i will say that the The chapter on children in my book was the hardest thing for me to do, and I I was sort of sobbing as I worked on the um, selections because, I don't know, I just think that vanity and all that just can't begin to compare how you worry about your children or... Let's take another step further and talk about a woman who's 30 and put into chemical menopause, and she can't have children.
0: There's one woman in the book who says that she doesn't think the issue of infertility is talked about enough.
1: It is a hugely upsetting thing. I experienced it. You cannot imagine the hollow pit feeling it gives you. I think it is just an unbelievably sad, sad um. God, I even hate to say side effect. I want to just say unbelievably difficult result from being treated with the breast cancer. On the one hand, you're alive. On the second hand, you can't create life. I think that's almost unnatural.
0: As far as women who lost their breasts, and if you add on to that, perhaps the woman also lost her ability to have children, do these women feel any less of a woman because of all of that?
1: Basically, they don't. I mean, one woman who, exactly as you described, in a you know, lost her breasts and became uh, infertile. She and her husband adopted, adopted some children. They adopted some dogs. She said, you know, we're now like a family of six. <laughs> she said, I can't tell between the kids running around and the dogs barking. And, you know, Again, people found ways and find ways to improve their lives.
0: You have a section in your book on pets and how important pets are (laughs) to people with cancer.
1: Yeah, we call them, one of the women calls them fur babies, which I just love, which I just love. Um, We certainly know, and particularly those of us in New York uh, who went through 9-11, we know the healing power of animals that brought us so much comfort. Uh, We know about dogs who heal so in my book, we learn about birds who heal. We learn about cats who heal, dogs, of course. My goodness, you'd be surprised at some of the pets people have, lizards and so forth. Uh, a cockatoo who talks for the first time and says, I love you, I, you know, repeatedly. The animals, they come up to you. They give you that unconditional love. And my gosh, the dialogue you have is just body to body. We know the comfort of animals. A woman with breast cancer knows the comfort of animals. And uh, I think that if I'd had my way, I would have even had more comments in the book about that. Because I say to anyone who feels lonely, hug a pet, stroke a little cat's head, um, you'll feel better.
0: Have you gotten to know any of the women in your book on a personal level?
1: I have gotten to know a number of the women. I mean, it's been remarkable. Somehow, um, while we went through the forum, I I did not write but a couple times because I didn't want them to sort of worry about me and think they were being judged. But once I was really working on the book, I started emailing some of them, and they passed my email around. And I sometimes get emails from up to 40 or 50 of them. A number of them came to my book launch. They We had the book launch in Manhattan. We had women come from San Francisco, from Wisconsin, uh, Chicago, Philadelphia. We just had an event outside of Chicago, and women came from all over the Midwest for that. It's been remarkable. I I adore them. I met them for dinner one night in New York's Chinatown. They're very important in my life. They've changed my life for me.
0: Is that online forum still active?
1: It is active. It's not uh, monitored the way that we were, we where we had a whole staff uh, working with hundreds of women. But we have a group that has chosen to stay active for years now. And it's about 150 of them. We had 800 women originally, literally from every state in the country and around the world. And we now have about 150 who self-monitor, self-post. They just do it themselves. And uh, they have Monday night talks on the phone. They have what they call group hugs. They're amazing.
0: Do you anticipate that there may be another book, I Am Not My Breast Cancer, a sequel to this book?
1: Oh, my. I thought about doing a a small book of sayings because there are so many wonderful, wonderful comments in the book. And because I'm a ham and I like to read them aloud to myself, so I thought I'd like to make a little book of sayings that for the woman who maybe can't afford you know, a $26 book, maybe she could afford a $9 book. And I don't know, whatever I can do to make someone feel better. It's just that simple for me, whatever I can do, I'd like to do.
0: Ruth Peltison, Thank you so much.
1: Thank you very much, George.
0: Ruth Pelteson's book, I Am Not My Breast Cancer, is out now from William Morrow. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Remember, you can get past editions of Cityscape and learn how to podcast the show at WFUV.org. Have a great weekend.